Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man and his hand will be against everyone. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave him, gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Let's pray. Holy Father, good Father, giver of every good and perfect gift, we thank you for the opportunity to put our attention on you, we thank you for the opportunity to worship, to connect with one another. Father, we come with different needs in this place. Some we are very aware of. We also have needs that are deep and maybe as of yet undefined. Lord, we recognize together that you are the one who heals. You are the one who gives us joy. You are the one who gives us wisdom. So at this time and place, we ask that in Jesus' name and by his spirit, that each of us would be changed. And Father, we ask not just for small change, but significant, meaningful change, because we recognize that you are able and you are so willing. Father, any part of this service, the children, seeing them up front, the music, Lord, and how it touches our heart, Words that are spoken or unspoken, we just ask again that you would use it all and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to be back. It's cold to be back, but it's fun to be with you. I'd shared at the first service this morning that just as our family was starting to feel super at home here at Advent Hope, we got this invitation to go and to um, commit some time and service in Australia. And Greg and I, when um, our oldest, Samuel, who happens to be with us today, when he started kindergarten, uh, Greg said to me, you know, Sarah, I really would love it if our kids could experience school outside um, of the States, um, if we can pull that off before they graduate high school. So when we had the offer to go to Australia um, and work at the church at Kingscliff there, we just thought, okay, now's the time. Let's not miss the opportunity. Australia is a beautiful place. I want to give you a few mental pictures. Um, we did go to serve. We also get the added bonus of the beach right outside our door. Um, it's such an open and um, spacious place, a huge country with uh, just, it's not crowded, not a lot of people. So we can go out to the beach in the morning and stay for quite some time and only see a couple dog walkers. So it just feels like you've got, I, I don't know about you, but for me, the, there's something about water, whether it's creek or ocean or lake, um, a waterfall, there's just something so renewing and refreshing about being in nature and getting to be near a body of water. So we're really grateful for that. Um, the kids are having fun, making friends. They do, you know, miss home more than I thought. Even with the, uh, we landed, Samuel and I, and the very next day we had that I guess the coldest day of the winter that you've had so far, we decided to come back on that. It was like two degrees. Um, and no, we didn't have things to pack when we came here. I barely could find a real pair of shoes. So we were not prepared. We've been very cold this week. But it's good to be back at Avent Hope. One of the features in the house that we just found a, a, a furnished um, home that we're leasing there, one of the things that I love about it is right above 
the fireplace, and we still don't know why they put fireplaces in homes in Australia. Um, but it just flips on with a switch, and if before the sun comes up, you can use it for a few minutes there, and at night maybe a little bit before you get too sweaty. But um, just above the fireplace, there's art that was already there, and it's just a three pieces of white canvas, and it says New York. So the owners had traveled here, and I, I love it. I, you know, on a, a Sabbath um, lunch, we have people over. They're sitting there, and I think, oh, at home, Ava help. They're just beginning their Sabbath Friday night, and um, so it's been nice to stay connected and get that prompt to pray and feel like um, we're still connected at home. Also, it's true, wild and crazy and deadly things do live in Australia, and they're um, even in the suburbs next to the beach. Um, I don't have a picture to share of this one, but you, we have already had our snake sighting. In fact, the first one on our property was 10 minutes. We're, we just landed, we took off our shoes, and what, um, for me, I, I just can't keep, quit telling people this about Australia. No shoes required. Really no shirt required for the guys either, but just, there, it doesn't matter where you are, no shoes required. Grocery store, women in business suits, no shoes, getting their shopping at the end of the day. At church, True story, uh, men in no shoes. We saw one time uh, an elder of the church slip on his shoes to collect the offering, but then they came back off. So no shoes, it's a barefoot country. We were barefoot checking out our, our new home the very first day, and I was with the three kids, and across goes a snake, and we backed up, went back to the house, kind of calmed ourselves down, jet lag, you know, enough adventure. Um, we were told, oh, probably nothing to, to worry about. We described it as a gray snake. A few days later, we had some friends over. They felt the need to show us a, a picture of a few deadly snakes, and one was the brown snake. And I mentally thought, oh, good. We saw a gray-colored snake, not a brown snake. We're all good. But as he showed us the pictures, I realized, wow, that looks so familiar. I feel like I've seen one up close. And uh, sure enough, a week later, our neighbor, our yards are just connected by shrubs, said, we spotted a brown snake several times, and I finally had to take care of it. So we were very close to a very deadly snake. Another Sabbath, I was just sitting outside, and someone said, oh, there's a snake. And, and then the, it just came up on the patio furniture next to me. And um, that one was just a python, is what they say there. It's OK. It's just a python. Um, so it's a wild adventure. We're happy to be there. Other fun things, big. Uh, Tarantula-looking spiders, crabs sometimes are found in the house. They're certainly in our pool. Uh, birds will fly in. So it's just a, it's a wild place of nature. It's like another place we've been, uh, the sense of jasmine and the bird calls. There are birds that wake us up in the morning. And I wasn't quite the morning person that I am here or there as I am here. But anyways, we get woken up to a bird call that sounds more like a monkey than a bird, and it's just, it feels so tropical and wonderful, so we're really glad for that experience. But we also miss it here, so it's, it was just a surprise to get to be with you. What I'd like to do before I get started is little ones, maybe seven above the kids, you listen to that um, children's story this morning, it was so good to see your faces. I have a challenge for you if your um, child maybe between seven and 12 and you like to draw or do something during church, I've got a few samples up here from last Sabbath at a church in Australia in Kingscliff. I asked the kids there to write down during the service as many names for God as they could think of. And um, you can get some help with that, but um, one of the messages of today's story that we're looking at in Scripture is this idea of getting to have 
um, special names for God. So if you want to get a piece of paper from a parent, write those down and then let me see them afterwards. I have one here that a little boy gave me. He found, wrote down 44 different names for God. Um, and actually, grown-ups, you may want to do this as well. It's a great exercise. So looking at today's text, before I actually go back to Genesis, I just want to flip to um, the Gospel of John, chapter 5. John, chapter 5, and verse 39. This has been a grounding scripture for me. Um, I'm still looking into it and just want to return to it before I speak and share in the scripture because it just reminds me to stay in point and where we're looking. Uh, John, uh, chapter 5, 39 reads, this is Christ speaking in a chapter where he gives many, much testimony about himself, he says to those desiring to follow him and those who were at lack and missed the call to follow him, he says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So that reminder by Christ is that when we study the scriptures, we are looking for him. It's a testimony about him. And I think sometimes in my growing up experience and when I was exposed to scripture early on, I found it such to be more of an academic pursuit. And that there was something about if I get the right knowledge and find the right lens and we know enough of the text and we can answer enough of the questions, that there we might find life or joy or connectivity with God. But it turns out to be, no, there we could get distracted and maybe self-consumed and maybe compare and judge with others at a different journey through the scriptures. But the scriptures were designed to testify about Jesus. So here we are in Genesis 16 and what's described, uh, what I look at, this is a very messy chapter. I'm going to back up a little bit at the beginning of Genesis 16. It's not one of these sweet, find it in a children's story story. But it is a story that testifies about Jesus. And then it is also a story that I found connectivity to, and I'm hoping you will as well. There are two key problems, issues, experiences that perhaps you felt that I've observed both in myself and others that I've had the privilege to study with. I'm studying with um, a group of women right now at Kingscliff Church. We're looking at prayer not just praying together, we get to do that too, and that's a blessing, but we're looking at prayer as a study, going through scripture and finding prayer models and discussing and really being honest and vulnerable with each other about what drives us to pray, when do we find it easy to pray, when do we find it a, just a nagging task to pray, when, why and when do we go through those phases in life when we aren't uh, feeling comfortable to pray. What do we sound like in public when we pray? What do we sound like in private? So we're meeting together, and I've really been blessed to, um, to hear people's stories. And so two of the experiences that continue to come up um, in Australia and here in different um, churches that I, I just wanted to use as a background for Hagar's story. And the first is the sense that a spiritual life is lacking or inadequate, um, maybe not as vibrant or real. Go, certainly we can go through the motions at church and sometimes we're prepped and we even know how to speak the language, but maybe we'll observe in someone else um, a life or an energy or a passion that we can't quite fake. Um, and, and we might have a few reasons for that, but there just feels like maybe there's just something missing, so that would be one. And I've seen this, um, I'm thinking of um, a few dear women that are new friends for me and they're later on in life, they have grandchildren, and 
I would turn to them for their answers and the, the scripture rolls off of their tongue, but yet they would share and have shared with me and when we're talking about prayer lives, lives and the condition of them, a feeling of inadequacy um, and a feeling of something missing. And so Hagar's story and the testimony of Jesus present in this text, I believe, has something to say about that. And then the second experience that I find really, really common, I don't think this is just with women, but I've had more opportunity in uh, facilitating small groups with women, and so I hear this over and over again, and this is that when asked to share what is the burden of your heart, what, what is the source of a lot of your prayer requests, what, is, what are those things that keep you up at night? And they could be vast, but oh, time and time again, in a church setting or in a Bible study setting, women will tell me that they're just burdened by the people in their life who they wish knew the Lord that the, the way that they did or the truth about Jesus. And so they just have this weight about how to rest in these relationships. And I believe that um, the story of Hagar has um, something to say about that. God is in pursuit of us, and we'll see that in this story. So back to this uh, messy story. I'm grateful that Scripture is full of stories. We have no need for more billboards. We have no need for more information that we can, can be accessed and read in dictionary form. We don't learn. We don't change by Wikipedia. We're changed and impacted by story. And so God, who made us to understand his love story, has given us scripture to testify about Jesus and to interact with our story. So reading at verse 1 of, of um, Genesis 16, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant, or slave, some translations will say, named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. And when I have read this, I've stopped and I've said, Okay, put yourself in Sarai's story and is there a connectivity piece and for me there's a connectivity piece because as I read further and if you read in the chapters before and after this one you'll find that Sarah has a tendency to blame her problems on things outside of herself including God so she has no children God's keeping me go to sleep with my maidservant perhaps I can build a family through her and do you hear it Sarah is saying perhaps I can build a family I can connect to this too this idea that if expectations of life isn't going the way that that you think it was promised and the way it was supposed to happen and the years are passing by, well then maybe I can do something, I can build something, I can make something happen. Abram agreed to what Sarah said, so after, after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband. And he slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. So here comes the mess and the conflict. Hagar was from Egypt, perhaps from the time that Abram and Sarah had passed through there. That would have been the same time that Abram decided to take matters in his own hand and protect his family by lying about his relationship with Sarah. Just that half lie, that half truth about her being his um, sister. So you see right in this mess, these are two people, Abram and Sarah, who have been called by God to have the promise and the blessing of all people to come through them. But they are still early in their journey, and they're still learning, uh, like you and I are, about the character of God and the power of God. So they're taking matters in their own hands. They're bending the truth. And we find out they're mistreating those around them as well. And Hagar despised her uh, mistress in uh, verse 5. 
Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. So first it was God to blame, and now it's her, her husband. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and she fled from her. So what she decided was best was to mistreat her. So this Egyptian slave... And that word is key for this passage. Paul will later in um, Galatians 4 and in the beautiful chapter of Galatians 5 talking about freedom will look back and say for those in the early church that they could study this story here um, in the books of Moses and they could understand that these two women, Hagar and Sarai, and later changed to Sarah, that they represented two covenants and that Hagar uh, would be represent those enslaved to the old covenant under the law, never able to live up uh, to the weight of the law, and that Sarah would be the promised one, uh, would represent the promised new covenant, that blessing that came through Christ. So here we have in, in the life story of this woman, a slave woman who's been mistreated, who's with child, and she flees to the desert. This fleeing would have been dangerous for her. Spiritually, it would be very dangerous to her. Those who would have already had some encounter and being called by God had let her down. They had mistreated her. They had misused her. They had taken matters in their own hand, hands and created a mess. And now this woman is on her own without a, a support system and spiritually, when we are on our own, when we flee, when we, when we uh, run away from conflict, when we run away from looking at our past, when we run away from tricky relationships, when we isolate ourselves from the real-life issues that we have, we're at risk. Because in isolation, the enemy and our own self-talk can be very, very loud. We need each other. It's taken me a long time to learn this. It's still an uncomfortable thing for me to bring needs to other people and really engage in community. But I've learned from God's word and from hard life experience that we need each other. So Hagar is outside. So here's a story that testifies of Christ. And here's a woman who is an outsider in every sense, mistreated and on her own. And now we get to see how God interacts with her. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come and where are you going? A beautiful trait of God is that he calls us by name. The intimacy of being known. What an unlikely character to be approached by the living God. There are not many other dialogues yet in the scripture, and certainly not with a woman, where God is communicating a message. But he found this Egyptian slave woman who's being mistreated and is in isolation, and he says two questions. And here's the other intriguing thing about our Lord. Throughout scripture, when God is encountering um, interactions with his creation, human beings, over and over again, he will ask poignant questions. And it's been brought to our attention. I'm, I imagine you've heard this before. Isn't it interesting that an all-knowing God asks really basic questions like, Hagar, where are you coming from and where are you going? Certainly, he knows the exact answer, the precise 
in a way that Hagar doesn't even know. Jesus was always asking questions as well. Who do they say I am? Who do you say I am? Do you want to be healed? Things that you could say on one sense seem really obvious, so why the questions? And this is one of the things that I have found is that God is a God who invites us into introspection. He asks what he already knows to invite us to begin to look inside and figure out what's happening there for our healing and our growth and our benefit. So he says, where are you going? In the Garden of Eden, after the serpent had deceived the first two on, to walk the earth, God came and said, where are you? And he says to you and I, where are you? Where did you come from? Where are you going? And he says, do you want to be healed? And he says, who do you say I am? He is a God asking us questions, probing our hearts for introspection. So here in this section of scripture, in this story where we can see Jesus is one who comes and calls by name the woman in isolation, and he says, where, are you where have you come from and where are you going? He also, in this section, names Hagar's child. I find the naming process isn't exciting. Like if you're thinking about adopting a pet or you're dreaming of children to come or you're pregnant and you're, you're going to have your child, isn't, isn't there something so special about the naming process? Uh, we're just made to, to, to somehow that, to, to give identity through a name. There's just something delightful about that, right? Like if I, I so enjoy naming pets, I accidentally end up with too many of them. And my um, husband is frustrated by that. We have three dogs and two cats. Um, naming. Here God names Ishmael, and he reveals something else about who he is. It says, um, you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Ishmael means God hears. So here, even before the promise to Isaac, even before the one who means laughter, to this slave woman, Jesus is revealed as a God who hears and marks it with a name. For I've heard of your misery. Jumping down to verse 13, here's where, what I'd love to show to you and connect it then to our two experiences of that feeling of burden for those who don't yet know God and then that feeling of maybe unspoken inadequacy or lack or uh, something that we're missing. And, and that's what, this, this would be at verse 13. She gave the name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Three things that I believe affect the way that we interact with those who don't yet have a vibrant uh, relationship with God, and the same three that would affect our own hearts as we grow into vibrancy and intimacy with Christ. The first is the most basic. Uh, took me about 30 years to figure out this was a need I had. Um, and then healing came really quickly after that. And the first is just a sense of not being seen or known. Human were created to be seen. 
In the church, sometimes we uh, maybe not intentionally, maybe with good, for good reason, we teach humility, and we certainly want to be outside of worldliness, so uh, we want to be careful, and out, we want to steer away from vanity and ambition. And I think sometimes with those messages comes another underlying message of be lost in the background. Just serve together as a group. And, and then there are those who really are desiring to be known and seen and celebrated in their individuality, being marvelously made, being given gifts for a purpose. But yet there's so many who just feel unseen and unknown. Hagar would have felt profoundly unknown and seen. And yet it's God who came and said, I hear you and I see you, and she was able to respond to that. The next thing that affects both how we interact with those outside of the community that we're hungering for, and then inside as we're growing in intimacy and vibrancy with God, the next thing would be a feeling of feeling unworthy of being loved. So this would be the state, maybe a few of us could um, identify this, where we're in a spiritual setting and we're part of a, uh, a spiritual community, but yet we, we feel not quite worthy of the love that keeps getting repeated week after week or chapter after chapter. We understand the, it, the language of the gospel, the freedom, the love, the unconditional love, the favor, the forgiveness. But there's just something else blocking it from going any further than a, a memorization or an intellectual yes to that. Um, and I would say one of those things would be shame. And of course, shame is that thing. It's different than guilt. Guilt is the um, experience that we have where we realize, oh, we've done something wrong. And that may be heavy and that may be um, something lighter. But either way, we're we say, okay, my conscience has checked me there. I've done something wrong, and I'll make a plan to do differently. Shame is something entirely different. Shame says, I am something wrong. And in a church setting, in a spiritual community, shame exists. And it's that thing that even while people may look like they're doing the same disciplines or practices outside, inside a community, a heart that is affected by shame will still feel like they're not quite doing it right because something is wrong with them. It works for other people. They'll keep trying, but there's a deep and heavy belief that something is just not right with them, that it doesn't fully um, resonate with them. For me, I, did, I didn't have a name for it. And again, we're in a chapter where God is the God who names things. I didn't have a name for the shame I was feeling, but there was a part of me for many, many years, um, too many now, I'm, I'm, every year that I don't live in this state, I'm so grateful to God and his grace for it, but too many where you could describe my spiritual life as me hanging on to God and feeling that I needed to do that. And I would do that with spiritual disciplines and uh, Bible study and prayer and, and, and being active in service and community, but it was me hanging on to God. But the gospel message is quite different. It's that God is so beautifully hanging on to us and that our grip can be loosened and we can be free from the striving and feel worthy to be seen and loved and known and, and cherished.
So there are those who feel unseen and those who feel shame, and certainly outside of the community as well. So the more that we can be honest and, and, and bring some light into these areas here, being seen and known and, and um, being set free from shame, how much more effective um, we will be in our community. And then the final, the third thing that I think really keeps us from fully being able to experience and feel the depths of what God calls for us in connectivity and communion and intimacy with him, being fully known, feeling that we, even in the deepest, darkest times, are heard and provided for, and then being able to be that same light and love outside of our uh, community is a state that is when feelings just go flat. And this would be named grief. And grief is when we just hardly can feel anything at all. We're numb. And, but this is the thing. Grief is a very human state. There needs to be no shame around grief. And certainly, even though we might not want to be seen in it, oh, the fastest way to heal from grief is to be seen in it. Grief can't be avoided, whether it's loss of someone we've loved or loss of a part of us that we was taken or we gave that we didn't really want to, loss of expectations the way that we thought life would turn out or where we thought we'd be by now, disappointment in other people that we had turned to and really thought that they would be with us through life or treat us a certain way. Grief can come in all different forms. And then the thing about grief, when it's unseen and when it gets matched with shame, when it goes a little underground, when we feel like it can't be expressed and it's something that we have to shove down, well, then it just stores up and then the next disappointment just compiles with that and it adds on until it's really hard to feel much at all. And then we find ourselves in a church setting and there is an awakening and there's music and there's scripture and there's the love of Jesus proclaimed again, but there's a, sometimes a disconnect. And this is significant in this passage that testifies about Jesus because Hagar would have been filled with grief by this point in her enslavement, in her fleeing, in the uncertainty and vulnerability of her future, being an outsider to a, a household that was meant to represent God and his mercy, but yet being mistreated and abused. And God tenderly enters the scene and right away, his message is, you are heard, you are seen, you are known. He also gives messages of return, go back and submit. Go from despising your mistress to submitting. He gives promises of what Ishmael will be and that the blessing will be upon him. Later on in Genesis, in chapter 21, again, Hagar finds herself in a desert. And this time, she's with her teenage son who's dying. They're dying of thirst. And again, God in his mercy because he doesn't just show up for us in our darkest times once, but yet again when we're in deep grief and shame and feeling unworthy, inadequate, and unseen. He comes to Hagar, and this time the question is, what's the matter? A familiarity, just the one that I know the name of, and I've named your son, and I've blessed, and I arrive, and I show up, and I say, what's the matter, Hagar? So God is a God of questions. And then here's the response. Here we are in the story of Hagar, not necessarily one that we tell to our kids before they go to bed, but one that's been given to us for us to understand the difference between life in enslavement under the old covenant of never being able to measure up to the freedom and the promise and the liberty of the gospel 
And when where God is the God who names and sees and hears and shows up, here is how Hagar responds. This is what inspires me. And I hope uh, there's someone here that also will be inspired by this response. Again, I'll read in ch uh, chapter 16, verse 13. She gave the name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. What a beautiful concept that this slave woman, mistreated by those who ought to have known God, she is emboldened and so moved by the mercy and intimacy of the living God speaking directly to her that she returns by naming the one who sees her. There's a saying, it's new to me, it's a Swedish saying that goes something like a well-loved child has many names. I think this is sweet. The more nicknames, just the affection. Different family members would call a child by different names. Uh, in Australia, we've noticed this a lot. You, few of the people that we meet, the name that we're told is their actual name. Our friend Karen is Kaz. Her son, Lucas, his friends now call him Dukes. And her daughter, Mila, um, is called Mills all the time. There's just this sense of renaming and playful nicknaming and there is something about naming, right? So here Hagar names God. I had the kids write down, and I really encourage all of us to list the names of God. I'm going to read some from um, a little boy uh, in Australia, and then I'll, I'll close this with what we can do in response like Hagar. Yahweh, Lord, Christ, Jesus, Son of Man, the Word, Ancient of Days, Father, Abba, Most High, Creator, El Shaddai, Jehovah, Adonai, my Father, the Great I Am, Master, Alpha, Omega, Jehovah, Bread of Life, Vine, Shield, Brother, New Song. He is a God of many names, a well-loved God of many names. And the more that we can meet with him, who do you, what is your favorite name for God? What are your favorite 10 names for God? What would that tell about your story? For Hagar, it was the one who sees me because she profoundly needed to be seen. And I think for many of us, that is a name that we could cling to as well. So how do we respond to this story that testifies about Jesus? Here's uh, one application for the church, and I believe that this, um, this uh, term at Hope, you're looking at the church and the call of the church. Now, certainly the church, um, the action that the church is called to is to be uh, the, the one that is sent into the communities, into the world, to introduce and to uh, bring others into the kingdom. But then we have this issue here. We've got one of some of us feeling disconnected from the vibrancy of all that we, we could have in our relationship with God, and it's really hard to share something that you're still sorting out, isn't it? And then we've got this burden because it's hard to go and approach those who don't yet know him without fear. And so I feel like the, the story of Hagar helps so much because it reminds me that God is an active pursuit. And he does it with love, and he does it by seeing, and he does it by knowing, and he does it by being the God who hears, and he does it with intimacy and questions of introspection. And then we sometimes do it with fear and with judgment and hesitancy. But what if we 
getting grounded in our sense of being known, asking questions of where we are and where we're going and what's the matter and who do we say he is and do we want to be healed, asking these questions of our own heart and then seeing the mercy of God as he answers those for us. Oh, and he is good at answering. When asked, we can in prayer say, God, would you reveal to me the things that are holding me back? When I've done this in the past, I haven't always been content with the answers, but they were real. There's addiction, there's codependence, there's ambition, there's contention, there's coarse speech, there's judgment, there's anxiety. And he's a merciful God who will name those things and then heal those things. And then once we're set free that way, then what if we simply said our mission is what if we are a people who sees others and hears others and gives nicknames to others and who can identify grief and shame and say, can I see you in your grief? Would you share your story? And we put everything else on hold, our fear, our wanting to have the right answer ready at that time, and instead we just meet there at those moments when people just need to be seen and heard, and we represent him well there. So what are your favorite names for God? He's a well-loved God with many, many names. He is the one who sees. He is the one who hears. He is the one who names. He is the one who sees me. Let's pray. Father, for your goodness, we praise you. Father, for your, your word and your love story, we praise you and we thank you. And again, we just put before you our time and the questions in our heart, and we ask that you would lead, that you would guide, that you would name, and that you would provide us with your overflowing love and knowing so that we may share with others. In Jesus' name, amen.